Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So I have recently been under suspicion that you are a chatbot or a robot. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I was thinking about giving you a Turing test. Ooh, let's do it. Okay. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So, Katie. Mm-hmm. What is a Turing test? And I've got Wikipedia up just to, to see if you copy it. So a Turing test classically is a test that you give a computer to distinguish whether it's a computer or a human. And so it's a, the idea is you're having a, a conversation with a chatbot, or maybe it's a person, you don't know. And after some limited amount of time, uh, the researcher has to say whether they think that the thing they were just conversing with was a computer or a person. And you say that the computer won the Turing test or beat the Turing test if it's able to convince human researchers that it itself is a human. Right. I, I think I'm actually convinced that you're a human after that explanation. It sounds oh, pretty thanks. Good. Yeah, yeah pr- it sounds pretty solid. Yeah, so the Turing test actually has kind of an interesting background. It goes all the way back to the 50s, right? Yeah, I mean, it was named for Alan Turing. And one of the things that was happening in the 50s was computing was becoming actually a thing for the first time. And a lot of people were thinking about the possibility of artificial intelligence and are there going to be computers that work the same way that a human mind does? And in particular, if there's something called strong AI, like a computer that's truly intelligent in the way that we think of humans as being truly intelligent, how would we know and so the Turing test was something that, that Turing came up with as a, a way of defining whether a computer is intelligent or not, is that an intelligent being should be able to talk to you like a human does, because we think of humans as intelligent and they can talk. And it's kind of, the Turing test has taken on a different meaning in the decades since. We think of it now not so much in terms of whether a computer is truly intelligent or self-aware. It's more of a, a benchmark for how quickly AI is progressing. And one interesting thing also about the Turing test is that the, um, the goalposts keep moving. You know, it's kind of this, it's not so much an actual test as much as it is kind of a symbolic representation of, of this concept of being able to distinguish between a human and a non-human. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at articles written in, uh, pop science or or gawker or any of those out, uh, media outlets they're always talking about the turing test and they're, they're they're always talking about how this technology or that technology passed the turing test question mark um but it's not so much a single test it's just when it's referred to colloquially it's usually a reference to this symbolic i guess question that we have yeah i think one of the things that's been tricky about AI research in the last few decades is the moving goalpost thing you mentioned. Uh, For example, in the early days of AI, people thought that a computer that could play chess is an intelligent computer because we think of playing chess as something that's very challenging for us as humans. And therefore, if a computer could do it better than we could, that must be an intelligent computer. Yeah. And also, one of the reasons that we would choose something like chess as opposed to tic-tac-toe is that it's combinatorially much more difficult. And so the thinking is that, oh, the computer couldn't just solve the game and and then, you know, give the most ideal move. Well, and so it turns out that when Deep Blue solved chess, most of the power of that algorithm was just brute force searching the tree. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why we don't think of chess as all the chess bots out there as being intelligent agents is because we were able to 
beat humans in chess, but without intelligence in the way that we intuitively feel like intelligence should be manifested. Mm -hmm. And the goalposts move again. Yeah. And, and so I think that there's analogs here with the Turing test as we think about it also in the, in the classical sense of talking to your computer. So we now have personal digital assistance, things like Siri, where I can just talk to my phone and it hears me in the sense that it registers that I'm saying things to it. it. It knows what I'm talking about in the sense that it can usually take some kind of action based on the things that I'm saying. And sometimes that action is right. I don't know that anyone would go quite so far as to say that Siri is intelligent or that yeah, right. there's a personality there. It, it, has the, it has the feeling of artificial intelligence, but somehow we all know that it's not really that, I, I guess, ish. I mean, certainly there are AI aspects to Siri and other and other such uh, products and services, but it's not it's not what like Isaac Asimov was talking about, you know. Yeah, so Siri would be another example of weak AI, and I think in general the thing that's true of a lot of weak AIs is it's a very there'll be very specific algorithms that are designed to solve very specific problems, things like playing chess or doing speech recognition or. Looking up the weather or the traffic patterns. Winning Jeopardy, yeah. Right. But then those algorithms don't generalize particularly well. So if I were to take the algorithm that won Go, on the one hand, it's a it's a general purpose algorithm. Uh, there's nothing that's particularly built into the algorithm that's about the rules of Go. Um, on the other hand, I wouldn't be able to take that algorithm and just out of the box have it be any good at chess, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, I couldn't take... Siri and ask her to start composing music for me and have that music be any good. So there is this, maybe one of the things that defines weak AI versus strong AI is the transferability of the knowledge that strong AI we think of as being able to learn and synthesize information in many different ways. And weak AI is more, we're just going to take this one problem and drill down on it very hard. And we might get somewhere this very, this very, uh, you know, successful compared to the places where we thought we could have been, but it isn't, intelligent in the way that we think of humans because humans are able to synthesize things across many different domains in a way that computers so far usually can't. Right. And um, one one interesting thing that I, I remember when I was first reading Asimov and I was feeling very uh, sympathetic to the machine side of it, and actually Star Trek for that matter too, where there's, a, there's this character named Data who's always endeavoring to become more human, right? And it feels like there's always something that the algorithm can't do that is what makes humans human, if that makes any sense. Like, it feels like they're they're always almost there, but then, like I said, the goalposts get moved, moved right? Um, and that may be for a very legitimate reason, like, oh, it's brute forcing chess, and the whole reason we thought that it might be a good proxy, chess to AI, is that you can't brute force it yeah, and unlike chess, the original Turing test still remains unsolved. Uh, no one's actually beaten the Turing test. There are some people who have claimed to have beaten the Turing test, and in general, I'm not particularly impressed with their claims. Uh, there's one in particular, this happened a couple of years ago, there was a research group that had a chatbot named Eugene, and they said that Eugene beat the Turing test under some very specific and weird rules about what defines beating the Turing test. I'm not sure that I agree with their rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But one of the things in particular that uh, I think is a, an important caveat is that Eugene 
they said that Eugene was a 13-year-old boy from Ukraine. And so when the researcher is talking to Eugene, that's the persona that they imagine behind Eugene. And so oh. there are a few things about 13-year-old boys from Ukraine. One right. is that they uh, the, the assumption is that this person doesn't speak English natively. And so when the computer makes weird grammatical mistakes or they're slightly stilted ways that it speaks, then you could just attribute this to the fact that it's like, oh, English isn't its first language, which is cheating a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And there's a different culture as well, right? So if you're, if the person on the other side of the test is in the United States and is coming with U.S. cultural norms, uh, they can uh, attribute any strangeness that's not just simple grammatical strangeness uh, to difference in culture or difference in age. Yeah, I was going to say, that was exactly what I was going to say. Third thing is that 13-year-olds are not necessarily known for having lots of well-developed conversational skills. <laughs> like some of them are, are true. They're very nice people, but they, for example, might have shorter attention spans or they say things that are inappropriate sometimes in a way that adults don't. Yeah, they're still learning. I, I, definitely, I definitely was one of those 13-year-olds that just didn't really know how to talk to people. And I, I eventually learned that skill. Yeah, so we have we have fairly well-developed chatbots at this point, but I think that the Turing test, the original Turing test, still remains, uh, for the most part, unbeaten. There are also some other interesting alternatives to the Turing test, and uh, I think they're fun to think about sometimes. Other ways that a computer could convince us that it's intelligent. So one of these is called the Winograd Schema Challenge. This is named after Terry Winograd, who is a computer scientist at Stanford. And the idea of the Winograd Schema Challenge is it's a series of questions that you would ask a computer that uh, there's ambiguity in the in the questions or in the statements that you're reading it, and it has to figure out things like pronoun, antecedent, agreement. So an example of a Winograd Schema Challenge would be, the trophy would not fit in the brown suitcase because it was too big. What was too big? Was it the trophy or the suitcase? Oh, clearly the suitcase. <laughs> No, the trophy. The trophy wouldn't fit. Yeah, so a human would get that right away because we understand like spatial relationships in a way that yeah. a computer doesn't necessarily if it's just learned how to talk to you. Another example is the town councilors refused to give the demonstrators a permit because they feared violence. Who feared violence? Was it the town councilors or the demonstrators? Uh, the councilors. Yeah, so the councilors are afraid that the demonstrators are going to be violent. Right. But again, because the computer doesn't understand, in this case, some social norms, it doesn't know that that's the right answer, and it, it doesn't really have the tools to disambiguate. So that would be an example of where a computer needs to obviously have the natural language processing abilities to understand the question, um, but also needs to have some spatial temporal context or some social context or some other information that it can that it can bring to bear on the problem so that it gets the question right. Another example of an alternative to the Turing test is called the Marcus test. The Marcus test, a lot of the questions revolve around watching videos or looking at images and then giving intelligent feedback on what you just saw. So a simple example might be like watching an episode of The Simpsons and saying where funny things happened. Mm -hmm. Something that a computer would not be able to do, but that you or I would have no problem with. Yeah, there's no laugh track to lock onto. Which is very important, I think, for the success mm -hmm. of that test. And then last I, one. Go ahead. Oh, I, I just have to say, I was just at the Computer History Museum. Uh, I, I went for a second time. And there's a presentation going on about the Babbage machine. And there's this one kid. And, and whenever the person would tell a joke, the entire crowd would laugh. And then the kid would recognize the laughter and start laughing himself. And it was really, <laughs> really adorable. 
I've been that person, you know, sometimes where you're sitting at a table and somebody says something funny and you don't quite get it or you didn't hear them, but you laugh anyway. (laughs) Well, it was cute with this kid because he was so delayed, you know, like everyone would laugh and then two seconds later, this kid would burst out laughing. Oh, that's pretty cute. Speaking of cute things, last one, my favorite Turing alternative test. Yes. So all the ones that we've done so far have a very strong emphasis on language and being able to interpret and produce language. Um, But there are other kinds of intelligence, like the intelligence of walking like a normal human turns out that walking naturally is very difficult to do things like that so in that vein there's something that i think is colloquially called the ikea test which is an exercise similar to one that we've all gone through which is where you're sitting there with your pile of ikea pieces of furniture and you have your little flyer that shows all the pictures of how to put it together with basically no words and you have to assemble the furniture like, if you could make a robot that could do that, then it would pass what they call the IKEA test, the IKEA version of the Turing test. So being able to look at the instructions, figure out how all these pieces are supposed to fit together, and also the intelligence of, of motor control, of actually screwing in screws and making sure everything is, is fit together tightly and nicely, that those are yeah. things that are highly non-trivial, as it turns out, being able to grasp things with your hands super hard for computers to do and robots are getting better and better every day but we're still nowhere near the either the gross or fine motor skills that humans have yeah yeah definitely so the future of a robot that roams around my house and helps me with all of my daily tasks is probably still pretty far out but if you can ever get it to assemble your furniture then uh i think you should call whoever's in charge of Turing tests and tell them that you, you, know, uh, that you want to assemble some Ikea furniture. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that there's actually a startup where you call them up and then their workers will come and assemble your Ikea furniture for you in your house, which I don't know, in some way kind of defeats a large part of what Ikea is about for me, which is that moment where you're sitting on the ground with all the pieces all, all sprawled around you, scratching your head, looking at the little illustration. I have spent... Many afternoons, me and one of those flyers and 75 different screws and trying to figure out what on earth is going on. I don't know if I could pass the IKEA test, honestly. (laughs) Linear digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.